Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to the season opener, the season debut, the season premiere of, I was going to say the Thinking Basketball Podcast, but that's, I mean, we're really just talking about the NBA season today for the first time. That's what's exciting. Cody, it's, it's been a long, short off season. We're back in 2023. Last year, we had the 75th anniversary season of the NBA and this year it's the 77th anniversary season so I'm just saying time is a flat circle how many seasons of thinking basketball do you think this is like when did you actually start is this like season five for you now 2018-19 was the first season so this is the fifth season of the thinking basketball podcast that makes no sense to me we're just going to ignore that and move right into talking about the league who have you been watching who's exciting who's on your mind Oh my goodness, Ben. Um, number one team that I just love to watch right now. Ben, I can't get enough of the Orlando Magic. Oh my God. Are they your favorite team? Uh, I mean, the Bucks exist, so no. But, you know, if we take out the Bucks, like, everything about them is just is just wonderful. Like, I don't do any draft stuff. So just like the Bancaro experience is just so exciting. The huge, weird lineups is so exciting. Franz Wagner is so exciting. Like, I, I don't know where to start. We could make this entire episode about the Orlando Magic, and we still wouldn't touch on everything that I want to talk about with them. I became the Vince McMahon meme the other day, watching the Magic. If you're not familiar with this, it's a meme where you get more and more excited about something as it builds, so Vince, McMahon, Vince McMahon's face gets more and more sort of, uh, uh, what's, what's the word, elated, ecstatic, yes, religious experience. That, that was what watching the magic on opening night was like for me. If you haven't seen this team, if you haven't seen this young, spunky bunch from the Magic Kingdom down in Disneyland, they're like a fairy tale. They go out on the court. They've got like... Paolo Bancaro, we talked about in the, in the season previews, the biggest human of all time. I don't even know. He doesn't even make sense. He's like 6'10", but he looks like he's 6'6". And I don't mean phony 6'10". I mean 6'10", barefoot. Like, he's just bigger than everyone else on the court. Yeah. But he initiates half the plays for the Magic because we're going to get to that because they're the Magic. Then he's out there next to Wendell Carter Jr. He's next to Franz Wagner, who's like 6'9", barefoot. And at one point, they get this jumbo lineup going. They have like... Bull Bull in the game with Boncaro and I want to say Wendell Carter and Franz Wagner and like Jalen Suggs or something. It is The lineup is enormous. And I'm at like level three of the Vince McMahon meme. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like typing to everyone I know. I'm like, the Magic are playing the biggest lineup ever. They have like four guys over 6'9". You know what Jamal Mosley does, Cody? No, no, what? tell me. Yeah. Jamal Mosley subs out Jalen Suggs. He says, no, 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 no. That's not going to be our point guard. Franz Wagner, the prodigy from Michigan, is going to be our point guard at 6'9", barefoot. He brings in Caleb Houston. He's 6'8". He's their smallest player. And then the front line is like, again, like Bull Bull. It might have even been Mo Bamba and Bull Bull and Paolo Bencaro. It might be the biggest team ever. And what they're doing that's so fun is in the old days, you know, we talk about Greg Popovich going triple towers when we get into historical stuff where they had Tim Duncan and David Robinson and Will Perdue. In the old days, you'd play big for defense. These days, playing that big with a bunch of kind of like drop-like stiffy big men, 
you can't cover the spacing and the shooting and the horizontal element of the court. So what the Magic end up doing with these jumbo lineups, and they've been running them for multiple games now, and it's spectacular, is they play a lot of zone to use their length and protect the big men. And then on offense, they just have Franz Wagner play point guard. And the other guy that initiates offense is Paolo Bencaro. Both of these guys in the old days could have been listed at 6'11", maybe 7 feet. It is beyond fun. Yeah, the very the very first defensive possession that they played this year against the Pistons, they fall back into a zone. They make the basket. They come back on defense zone right away. And I'm like, oh, this this team is absolutely it. And I think the lineup when I was just like, like you said, all in. Bull, Bull, Wendell Carter Jr., Mo Bamba. I don't think Van Caro was in there, but Franz Wagner was in there. And what I like about this lineup is like a few years ago, I don't know who started it. I don't know if it was the Bucks that was a part of it or even like the Magic themselves were a part of it. And they were, everyone was trying to build these lineups that's like, let's get a bunch of these guys that are 6'6 or bigger and we can switch everything. You know, it was like the, uh, oh, I can't remember the point guard that played for the Bucks and the Sixers, Michael Carter-Williams. Uh, Michael Carter-Williams. Thank yeah. you. So it was like that kind of a player. And it was going to be really switch heavy. But the issue is that none of those guys could really rim protect. And what I'm loving about Bancaro, the thing that stands out to me is like he's a really developed rim protector for a guy that's not like a natural center in my mind. Like there were a couple times that I saw him go against Bogdanovich was just making his life like a nightmare in the paint. And so like you don't necessarily have all these big guys that are great at being you know, like the quickest feet on the perimeter, but you have all these guys that if there is a blow by, somebody else can rotate and bother them with a shot. I'm like, this is, this is absolutely it. I would prefer to actually sacrifice some of this like perimeter defense to get a little bit more of that rim protection. And that, that made me really excited. I don't, I don't know. Do you agree with that take? Would you rather maybe toggle a little bit more towards rim protection versus the, the perimeter defense? Or do you like more perimeter defense when it comes to, to switching lineups? Oh boy, that's that's one of those trade-off things about basketball where I, I think my answer is I, I want the one that's the best. <laughs> so so sometimes you could get maybe you have players that the the more perimeter oriented defense actually ends up being a bigger net positive, and sometimes you have personnel in a scheme where more more paint presence is a net positive. It's kinda like what you see with your bucks where in the past They've sacrificed defending part of the three-point area to prioritize the paint. That makes them a great defense. But then you can have other teams like uh, Golden State's defense be very switchy and horizontal. And so, so I think my answer is always in those like things where it's close and you're making trade-offs, the one that's the more successful. But I get what you're saying where it feels like you have maybe a higher baseline ceiling if you have guys that can get into the paint and make it really difficult to score in those high-value areas without getting crushed on the perimeter. Um, speaking of crushed on the perimeter, yeah, should should we have a Rudy Gobert discussion? Oh. I, you're going to make me for the third time on this show say I'm done talking about Rudy Gobert in this capacity. But let sure, let's have a conversation. What do you want to say? No, I think we should start with why you're done talking about Rudy Gobert. Remind everyone why this is such an unpleasant conversation. So, I mean, if we go back for, for years and years on the jazz, like... Years! year, Literal years. Rudy Gobert is just like, I don't know, top five room protector in the last 20 years, let's say. Let's just keep it to the last 20 years. Just like rim protection rim protecting machine unto himself and he's just been surrounded or he was surrounded by these perimeter defenders that just like didn't funnel 
players to him because that was part of the scheme, funneled players to him because they can't protect on the on the perimeter. And so he ultimately ends up doing everything. Like maybe the Clippers put out a five spacing lineup that he has to go out, defend somebody. Then he has to recover to the rim and he has to jump out and try and close out on a guard and he gets burned and it looks really ugly. And we see that kind of thing with the Timberwolves here where maybe Anthony Edwards is hugging up too close on his guy, isn't stepping out to the nail quite as much as he should be. Mike Conley gets into the paint throws a, a weak side corner pass that makes Carl Anthony Towns, you know, have to recover. And Gobert still gets lambasted for being like, well, if they didn't have to, like, you know, adjust for his his drop defense, because he's literally the best drop defender in the last 20 years, they wouldn't have to do this. I don't, it's all of those things. Like, even though he's just incredible at this one thing, he gets blamed for all of these other defensive issues that his, his teams end up having that are outside of his control. Yeah. So the short of that, I think, is that he's <laughs> I thought you were gonna go with a shorter a shorter reason. I uh, worked up and yeah, I'm angry you, about this. I, you're 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 in mid season form already. This is fantastic. I think the short of it is that something has happened. It's kind of like the winning bias or the losing bias I talked about. Something has happened where people watch Gobert through a special filter and they turn on the jazz back when he was in Utah. And the Jazz gave up points. And what they're doing is they're looking for ways to explain why Gobert didn't stop the other team from scoring points, which is unique. It's different. We don't do that with other players. We don't look at a five-man defense and go, the reason this defense gave up these points or the reason this defense is the 12th best defense instead of the first best defense is because Kawhi Leonard didn't guard all five players on this possession. But we do it with Gobert. So there's already some focus or some filter in our minds. Now he goes to Minnesota. And I said it on the last episode, the season preview with Dave DeFore that we do. I said I was concerned about the personnel and about Minnesota having to play drop because the entire scheme that they played last year was basically to protect Carl Anthony Towns's weakness and even try to sort of leverage the strengths of D'Angelo Russell as a communicator, but D'Angelo Russell isn't very quick or agile horizontally or things like that. Those aren't his defensive strengths. So you put together a system and and Jared Vanderbilt's behind the play running around and, um, you know, you have guys that can cover behind the play. Now they change the scheme and they've got Gobert and Towns and it seems like people are blaming Gobert for Towns not being able to sort of defend in a more traditional drop as one of the forwards. Understandably, to some degrees, he's really a center in today's game. But as I mentioned, the entire personnel, even Anthony Edwards uh, and certainly D'Angelo Russell, it changes their roles. And that is one of the early season concerns for me is how Minnesota is going to have to figure that out. Are they going to have to be creative with their scheme? I think another thing that's really understated in this whole Gobert situation, Cody, is teams are a little bit more vanilla in the regular season, night to night, right? But with something like Gobert, what you're seeing is not experimentation. It's not radical lineup changes. It's not strategy. It's like a commodity. The whole league knows if you're going to go Twin Towers now, one of the options we can do is go to a smaller, spaced out, five out lineup. The whole league has personnel for a smaller spaced out. This isn't 2017 anymore. It's not like you have a few teams that can do this. 
So given the number of teams that already have this in their bag, they're basically saying to the Timberwolves, like, you guys are trying to cheat the system. You guys are trying to play double bigs and neither of your bigs are very versatile. Why would we play into your hands? Of course, we're going to try to space you out one sub or in the case of opening night against Utah, Utah has a bunch of frisky NBA players and it's like, okay, Kelly Olynyk, what's he love to do more than anything in life? Shoot 12 threes in an NBA game. And of course, it. I think there is a legitimate issue, as I mentioned, with Minnesota, but it's your frustration, you know, to this point, it's so fascinating that people blame Gobert for the entire thing. Yeah, and that... One of those lineups that the Jazz rolled out there was like a Laurie Markkinen, Kelly Olynyk, Jordan Clarkson, uh, Beasley, and it was just like it's a, a lot bunch of shooting. Of these, yeah, yeah, just and not just like shooters off the couch, like guys that are like, all right, I got this. Like they this, is, go. this is this is my turn. Like <laughs> inbound pass, Jordan Clarkson, like fade away in someone's face. It's like, all right, yeah, what are you supposed to do about that when these guys are just going for it? And there's a couple possessions where, like, sure, in transition, it's like maybe Gobert should have stepped up and watched that Olenek was coming. But also, like, this is a perfect lineup to kind of counter the the Towns-Gobert combination. But again, like, we're taking the issues that Towns has, right? We've been talking about Towns on defense since he came into the league, and instead of, like... You know, talking about maybe how towns could improve or talking about how team building, you didn't set up a team that could necessarily be more flexible. It all goes on Gobert. And it's like Gobert is actually the reason that towns is struggling at the four. And it's just it's very strange. To me. Yeah. And I would I imagine it would be even more strange and uh, even more in your face as to sort of how different it is if we talked about an offensive player this way. You know, if we were if we were like if we were like that Luka Doncic. Look at what happened when his Mavs didn't score in this possession. He, he Did he go and get the offensive rebound and single-handedly score? Did he cut into that open space in the paint? Did he come off a double, double stagger, reject the screen, backdoor cut, relocate to the corner and stroke a three like Steph Curry did? No? Well, then it's, it's his fault. The entire reason the Dallas Mavericks didn't win this game with a 130 offensive rating is because Luka only did that off on-ball stuff that he does. He didn't do any of the off-ball stuff. It's like... Just about every player in the world, no matter how good they are, has strengths and weaknesses. And where I'm at with these drop bigs and Gobert, and we'll see what trends continue this season as we get more data. But when you look at the playoff data, I've mentioned this before, there are drop bigs having great playoff success in the right scheme. Rob Williams is the latest one last season who just looked like a massive difference maker defensively when he was on the court with the Celtics. And it's difficult to see how Gobert wouldn't be as good or better, or if you want to be really unfriendly, say slightly worse than like Rob Williams in that position. And other teams have had this, your Bucks with Brooke Lopez. There's a number of sort of more traditional drop bigs who have still had successful defenses built around them in the playoffs. They're just never going to have the versatility to go and cover every mistake. Therefore, you can get on a team that isn't the top defensive team in the world built around you. Or you can get in a situation like Minnesota where fit becomes an issue now. That defensive fit is probably more of a thing today than it ever has been in NBA history. But to me, that's just that's less about Gobert. 
and you talk about Rob Williams, and then you talk about the Bucks with Brooke Lopez. Like, who's who's flanking Rob Williams when he's doing that drop? You have, you have Al Horford, extremely switchable ba- big. You have Marcus Smart, the literal defensive player of the year last year. You have Jason Tatum, probably a better defensive player, more impactful defensive player than Marcus Smart. You have, J- you have Jalen Brown, who's, you know, his off-ball defenses, defense has its warts, but, like, he can stay in front of his man. You have Derek White. Like, any one of those guys would be... You know, besides maybe Jaden McDaniels, and we can maybe talk about that, would be easily the best defensive player that Gobert ever played next to, right? And then with the Bucks, like Brooke Lopez, who's next to him? Giannis Antetokounmpo, another defensive player of the year. You've Drew Holiday, one of the best perimeter defenders ever at the guard position. And it, it's weird because, like, if if you gave Gobert this talent, I don't think you'd be seeing these sorts of things. And I don't know, Jaden McDaniels is probably, like, by far the best defensive wing, at least, that Gobert's ever played with. Who's even number two? Is is Joe Ingles the second best perimeter defender? Is, is like, three, like, a couple of years ago, Mike Conley the best perimeter defender? Who Who is it? Three weeks of healthy Dante Exum. <laughs> I believe that's the correct answer. Okay. To that question. Yeah. That thank you. That very much proves my point. The other big team that is worrying me a little bit right now is Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I think we have to talk about Philadelphia. We're only a couple games in, and of course, longtime listeners know it's a small sample. There's not too much to have big reactions to at the beginning of the season. We'll see how this plays out. But Philadelphia is a team that now, all of a sudden, after 15 games, instead of being 11-4 and and atop the conference, sure, Cody, they may win some ball games and get a little rhythm, but it looks like it looks like they're going to be like 9-6 and six or something after 15 games because they're already 0-3. Or if they don't turn the tide and they continue to struggle creating an edge in the game, they might be like 6-9 and nine after 15 games. And for a team projected by many, uh, myself included, to have a ton of regular season wins with the roster they have, it's it's been a little bumpy to start. I have some thoughts and theories, but what, have you seen them play? And if you have, do you have the same concerns or is it just no big deal? They played a couple good teams. They happened to be 0-3. So I wish that I had a chance to see them play on, on Saturday, right? Because I think that was, that was a big game. Who did game. they play on Saturday? I don't even remember who they played yesterday. Saturday but, was yesterday? Yeah, yesterday. I didn't realize that. I'm sorry. Oh, they played this. This was the disappointing. They played the Spurs. Yeah. 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 So Embiid has 40. Harden scores in, in double digits. But before that, especially in their second game, the thing that really stood out to me is it seemed like a lot more Harden ball. And that was that was kind of my concern. Is like, I don't know how Embiid is fitting into this Harden ball build for offense. But then, of course, like yesterday... It switches and Embiid has 40. So I'm like, I don't necessarily know if the offense switched. I don't know if they were doing something different. So I don't know if you saw the game, if you can add to it. But to me, that's that's the main thing is they seem to be really leading into let's cater to Harden's offensive abilities as opposed to making it an Embiid-centric offense. I saw their first two games. It was incredibly Harden-centric. Now, there were some sound bites uh, going around, I think from practice in the preseason with Doc Rivers talking to James Harden about how he wanted him to do more and how he wanted him to just sort of understand that like this is his team. They want him to be as aggressive as possible with scoring and playmaking. And then Harden himself talking about how he felt healthier. Um, You know, he did work on his body and his hamstring and he felt like he was in better shape. 
And so I agree with you completely. Based on those two things, it seemed like the first two games were not just hardened ball, but hardened ball in a way that felt more like old Houston, where it's his team and Embiid happened to be on the court and get a couple post-ups. I don't even think they were running too many pick and rolls together. One interesting wrinkle about that is that it can be a very formidable pick and roll tandem. We saw that at times last year. If Embiid wants to put his head down as a roll man, it's a little dangerous. It's a it's a proceed at your own risk, safety hazard to get in front of him. And then, of course, he's so skilled and such a good shooter at this point, both from the mid range uh, on a little short roll and popping to the three point line. There's a lot. There's a lot there that potentially is nice, but he doesn't want to go up in the air as a lob threat. And the other thing is Harden really likes the left-to-right pocket pass off his left hand, but Harden likes to set up on the right side of the court. That's his preferred side. So if you have these little handoff actions or early pick-and-roll stuff, or even if you think about um, him getting a switch and going into isolation to attack, he wants to be on the right side of the court, so his left hand takes him into the middle of the paint. He, I, th- I think he's a little bit more dominant on that side. And Bede likes to post up on the other side of the court. So there's, there's just these little geometric things that might make it a little bit harder to mesh everything together. And I agree with you, Cody. That was my biggest takeaway, which is like on offense, Harden looks better. He's still a fantastic offensive player, but these guys aren't meshing. And maybe most importantly on offense, and I want to get to defense in a second, but maybe most importantly on offense, Tyrese Maxey has a ton of ability one as a as a great shooter two attacking closeouts and three getting out in transition and it felt like he was the one who was also getting sort of lost in the shuffle if you will and i think the vision for the optimized sixers is a blend of Embiid, harden and maxi all trying to create value in their own way where maybe harden's playing more like point guard harden Embiid is more of the scoring machine, and Maxi is filling in with all the closeout attacks, three-point shots, um, you know, get him in space later on in the possession and just let him drive. And that felt like it was a little um, incongruous, let's say, in the first two games that I saw. Yeah, there, there were a couple of actions that I really liked that was able to incorporate them. Like, I, I felt icky when it just turned into, like, Harden calling up a ball screen and Harden isolating, things like that. But there's one play that I can think about that actually, I think, emphasizes Max's ability to just like straight line drive, maximum speed sort of thing. And I think it was in the first game against the Celtics where you have, you know, you have, like you said, Harden's on the right wing and Bede's kind of stationed at the top of the perimeter. Maybe they're going to be going into a ball screen. But what happens is Harden reverses the ball. Maxi's in the quarter. He comes off a, a pin down. He comes off and gets the, the dribble handoff from Embiid. All of a sudden, the entire Celtics have to adjust, right? Because they're they're expecting this Harden-centric attack. But all of a sudden, we're swinging to the other side of the court where Maxi's swinging around, getting the DHO, and getting downhill. I don't remember exactly how that position ended. I think maybe Tatum might have even blocked it because he's been on a, a just a, an incredible run defensively and offensively. But still, when I saw that, I was like, yeah, this is how you incorporate people. This is how you use everyone strengths as opposed to being like you you're relegated to the corner while us two while we do our thing offensively 
Yeah, and it's interesting that then they play the Spurs in Game 3. Neither of us have seen that game. We're still talking about small samples. I'm not selling the Sixers or doom and glooming them, but it's just an interesting sort of thing to see that style in the first two games. And then in Game 3, see Embiid go for 40, and I think Harden ended up with 12 points and a ton of assists. Uh, But they they also lost again. And I don't know if you have any more thoughts on the offense just from the first couple games that we mm-hmm. saw, but defensively, one of the things that I did briefly mention in last week's show that I thought was on the table is Embiid in the regular season, uh, the effort defensively can can come and go, and it looked like in the first two games, the best way to describe it, because he's so gifted and he's so big, the best way to describe it to me is that he was soft. And I don't mean in the Euro sense, I mean soft on the actions. Like if he's in drop, he doesn't really contest that hard. You know, if someone's coming at him, he's not selling out to get a block or make a big play. He's kind of feeling it and letting the letting the game come to him, but he's not uh, exerting a ton of effort and trying to make big plays. And that might change in the playoffs, that might change in the regular season. When he's engaged, he's obviously a more gifted defender. But you got to remember, he's a big guy. He's trying to stay healthy, and anytime he's exerting a lot of effort on offense, that's probably going to zap some of his effort on the defensive end. And that, to me, is kind of the biggest thing to watch right now for the Sixers. And I'm setting you up for another Cody special rant about one of your favorite players because it feels like it feels like they're missing a little bite on defense that could help them as the offense. You know, it's one thing to have like an average offense. If you have a great defense and an average offense, you're at the top of the conference. And if you have a pretty good defense and a good offense, you're at the top of the conference. But when your defense is negative, then you need a great offense to get to the top of the conference. Ben, have you, uh, do you ever get into playing like NBA centric video games, NBA Live, 2K, any of those at any point in your life? NBA Live 95 forever. It's the only one they should have made. Did, uh, did 95 allow you to move different players onto rosters so you could kind of build a dream team? Yeah, you can do that. Yeah. Okay. So the Sixers have this setup where you're almost to a dream team, right? You have DeAnthony Melton and you have Matisse Thybul. And if you're talking two wing defensive players that I would go out of my way if I still played 2K to put on the same roster just to see what happened, they would probably be pretty close to the top of my list. And Ben, Matisse Thybul is playing like a minute and a half a game. A minute and a half a game. Early on, he was getting like, he would be put in the last four seconds of the quarter. Boom. That's it. I think he played 24 seconds in their first game. And I get the spacing issues. I do. But I also know there were a lot of possessions last year where he was really good at just kind of snaking himself into space, getting maybe a dunk from Harden when he drives because Thibault's just so active and running around. And defensively, like you said, Embiid's motor isn't really revving right now, right? We talk about this a lot. Embiid doesn't rev up ton in the regular season. P.J. Tucker, he's a good defensive player, but what, he's 37 or something like that? He's also not like a huge activity guy off ball. The Melton is great, right? Maxi has his warts defensively. Harden, Harden is a wart defensively. They need, they need somebody that's going to inject, like you said, not to needle on the point here, but we need to inject some defensive 
explosiveness into their defense. And I just do not understand how a guy that was getting 20 minutes a game two years ago and 25 minutes a game last year is all of a sudden getting a minute and a half a game, especially like if you're going to tell me the spacing thing, we're early in the season, experiment, make it work, see what kinds of offensive things you can figure out. And you're telling me you can't get spacing with Harden, Maxi, Embiid, Thibel, and someone else out there. Like, I, I just, I literally do not get it, Ben. Do you have a good explanation, like talking to me as an adult, as to why Thibel is not getting more minutes? Are you saying you're the adult or I'm the adult? This is a lot we're, of pressure. We are, we are talking man to man right now, Ben. Mm, like, I what, don't know. What is the reason? Uh, I think he's seen as an offensive liability, and I, I think that's it. So, on one hand, you have his outside shooting, and in what? three seasons of NBA basketball, he's shooting 32% from downtown. There might be kind of a Mendoza line situation there where that's too low for them for whatever reason. 32%, that comes out to 0.96 points per possession on those shots. In the you know Is NBA offense too efficient for a good team to have a 32% shooter? Defenses don't really want to guard him. They don't care about him. And then, in addition to that, not just the shooting, what is he doing on the rest of the possession? Can he cut and finish with confidence? Can he uh, be someone that is the sort of beneficiary of someone else doing something and then they get a, a layup or a dunk or maybe most importantly, free throws? And he's a 66% free throw shooter. That's fine. It's not great, but 66% free throw shooting is the equivalent of 66% field goal per sh- shooting. So that's fine. But I think it's just all of those things in an offensive possession like his ability to pass, his ability to make open shots, his ability to pressure the defense. And teams don't want to play five on four or four on five on offense. So I don't know if it's the right call. Uh, we could, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Thibault's back to getting 26 minutes a game at some point in the near future. But I, th- I imagine from a basketball standpoint, that would be the explanation for why he's out of a lineup that does have, the 76ers do have, a ton of nice roster players at this point for the regular season. You know, Niang, Melton, Tucker, Daniel House. Like, I think they would rather have those guys out there for two-way balance than worry about playing four on five, the Andre Roberson effect of of playing with Matisse. That, I, I'm not saying that's what I would do, but I think that's the explanation, or at least I think- a, an, an explanation. Especially after starting 0-3, though, like, I feel like that's the time to just kind of shake it up. Be like, all right, clearly what we're doing isn't working. Let's let's try something else. It's the regular season. I'm okay with being 0-3. Like, I really am. This is a time for experimentation to try things out. And I think, like I said, that's what frustrates me. So I don't know what, what Thibel's showing in practice or off the court necessarily that's making them not very confident that he can do these things. But early on when I see, you know, players are getting... Um, Players are getting the time to be like, all right, let's see what you worked on. Let's see how it works in a game. And I'm, I'm just shocked that Thibault's not getting that as being a premier perimeter defender the last couple of years. Yeah, understood. Um, just some numbers, I think, that might actually be a little bit more optimistic for the Sixers starting to win games and maybe turning it around. Uh, turning it around is not even the right phrase, just getting a rhythm. Uh, I do think there's this background thing that we've discussed about how the fit's going to work and who's going to play and all that. And that might be the bigger issue, but the indicators haven't really been that problematic. They've played two good teams. They've had some close games. So with Harden and Embiid on the floor, 
They have a 111 offensive rating that's just below league average in the first, you know, five days of the regular season or whatever it's been. That's not great for your two superstars, especially when you want to be offensive centric. They've shot 31% from downtown in those minutes. Is that because they don't have great three-point shooters? Is that because Tobias Harris finishing your three-point possessions or whatever is a problem and you need a better shooter in that slot? Or is it just shooting luck? 31% is pretty low, so there's probably some some shooting luck there. But then you get some um, really kind of weird numbers with like Embiid. We talked about the defense. The Sixers' defense in the first couple games is at like 115 or 116, which is in the bottom third of the league. And the, the team is actually outscoring opponents with James Harden on the court by about two points per 100 in these first couple games. We're talking like 170 possessions here, just so everyone understands. Just very small number of possessions, but just trying to relay what has happened on the scoreboard in those minutes. Embiid, on the other hand, they have been outscored when Embiid has been on the floor. If you look at basketball reference, I think they're like minus eight per 100 and that means when Embiid's on by himself and Harden's off, they've struggled and the defense has struggled. So only a couple games. Um, we know they're going to start winning games, but they are of the sort of top teams along with Minnesota. I think the most fascinating for me out of the gate in terms of like, how are you going to get creative? What's going to change? Does anything need to change? And, and is there an actual problem? Right now, there's a little smoke. There's a little smoke coming over the mountain. I don't know what it is. Maybe someone had a campfire. Maybe there was an actual problem. Uh, we'll find out. I guess we should emphasize that. Three games in or however many games in. Like, I'm not, I'm not out on the Sixers, right? We're, we're just talking about these things. Because last year, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I thought when they were on the court together that Harden and Embiid were like a 121 offensive rating or something like that. Like, it was a very successful offense. We've seen it work. We know it can work. But it's just like when you see it, you know, the process of things, like I don't remember it quite being as hard and centric, and I remember Thibault playing more. And th- those, those are just my two takeaways at the moment, right? And I, I would like to see some of those change. I would like to see a little bit more variety. Like you said, not out on the Sixers. I think this is a very good team. I've been impressed with Harden offensively, like not to go back to that, but I think he, he looks better than he did at times last year. Like he's kind of really bursted out on the scene and I'm like, okay, this guy, this guy still has a bit in his bag, right? He's still able to blow by guys, get in the paint, kick the ball around, things like that. So all well, of those things the mid-range make back. Yeah, the mid-range, yes. yeah, the oh mid-range is back, which I love. I don't remember which game it was. Maybe it was the second one where I think I texted you and I'm like, I think Harden's taken more mid-range game uh, jumpers this game than in his entire Rockets tenure. Yeah, not not quite because he actually used it for part for like a huge part of the Rockets tenure, but certainly like post 2018, we haven't seen that. And he's been peel back elbow jumper many times early in the season. So there's a lot of stuff there. Maybe for Philadelphia, the issue is experimenting and tinkering in the right way. I'm I'm perfectly happy to put on the rosy glasses after starting 0-3 and say, you know, it Harden Harden gets to puff his chest and flex his game and sort of get a rhythm. Now Embiid needs to find a rhythm. Maxi will come along and there's maybe some X's and O's experimentation or to your point, some lineup experimentation. Maybe you need more Melton, maybe putting Thibault back in there. You know, who knows? Who knows? But I'm very happy to look at the early part of the season and say that experimentation is not only something that you need sometimes, but maybe 
healthy. Maybe, I mean, last year, the Celtics came on like gangbusters after they kind of figured out their lineups and their defensive principles. And that wasn't really until December and January. Dallas didn't really hit a, hit a stride, um, you know, until later in the season and certainly post-trade deadline when they started to kind of understand how they wanted to play. So sometimes I feel like in today's game, if you can learn an experiment in the first month or two of the season, that's going to actually set you up to have a competitive advantage later in the season. And I I don't know about you, but I feel like this also applies to young players, Mm -hmm. not just teams, but like seeing young players, especially second year guys coming back after the summer and doing things that might not work right away. Like we talked about Franz Wagner playing point guard for Orlando. He looks like he has the skills to do it to me. We've seen him play these pick and roll sets at times last year. We've seen him make certain passes. We know he presents a problem with size. He can get downhill. He can finish. He's got that beautiful one-legged Dirk Nowitzki fadeaway he can go to, go to from like inside 10 feet. And we know he's a great shooter, so he can not only hit threes against drop coverage, but he can get into step-back threes at like 6'9". So I love the idea. But you watch the first couple games and he's getting really frustrated. He's throwing a lot of turnovers. He's missing open shots. I think that kind of experimentation is actually really, really valuable. And sticking with the magic here, that's what I was thinking about with this experimentation. When I was when I would be watching them, like Bankero, I'm just going to keep fa- fawning over this dude. Like he's incredible. There were a couple times, like like off ball in transition, he's like sucking in the defense and opening up shots for players. Um, when he rolls, he's really good at just like hanging out seven, eight five feet away from the basket and scoring. And then they'd switch and he'd get a couple of possessions where he's running the the pick and roll. And immediately in my mind, I'm like, why are you doing this? Like, he's so good off ball and he's so much better as this off ball player. Why not just do that more? And I'm like, oh, let's slow down. This is his first like three NBA games. Like, ex- as, as Evan Zaucha always says, uh, been on this podcast before, explore the studio space. Like, what do you have to work with? Like, what, what tools can you develop early on? And that's the kind of stuff that I love to see. Wendell Carter Jr., he's shooting with no hesitation. Like, he just catches on the perimeter and his jumper looks smooth. It's not quite going in. But when I see that, I'm like, yeah, yeah, young man, you keep firing that away. You see if that starts working. And so I, I love I love these these teams early on being like, you know what? This isn't ideal. There are better things we probably could do, but we're not in a playoff matchup right now. Let's see how we can develop these guys early on to see if we have something magical in here. I love that Evan's getting credit for Will Ferrell uh, working with the Blue Oyster Cult about exploring the, the studio space. That's... Uh... <laughs> I've heard Evan refer to it as basketball, right? Like applying it to basketball. That's where I'm like, that's the first person I think of. So I'm going to shout him out. He deserves, he deserves that uh, credit. Of course, Blue Oyster Cult, they, all they, all they needed was a little bit more cowbell. Um, All, all I need is a little bit more of all these young teams. Another experimentation guy for me, Scotty Barnes. Hmm. And I have heard some people understandably be like man scotty's getting a little fast and loose with the basketball he's i tune into the game some of his percentages are down he's taking some crazy shots things like that but it goes back to this point young players sometimes come in and you have to figure out how to synthesize what you've practiced in a non-game environment in the real game and so i almost look at someone like scotty barnes and Yes, 
with all of these situations, whether it's the team level or certainly the individual level for young players, if you let them experiment too much, you can go in the wrong direction, right? You can develop bad habits. That's the risk. That's the trade-off. But the gain, the value add that you're looking for is that, okay, in the first couple games of this season, or maybe the first two months of this season, Scotty Barnes is shooting 30% on his new, like, twisting fadeaway in the middle of the paint. But if he's practiced that shot all summer and he's got it, or his three-pointer, I don't know what his three-point percentage is in the first couple games. We can get our stats department on that while I talk. But if his three-point shot is legitimately improved and he's taking more because of that, you come out in the first couple games and you're like shooting 20% or whatever. I'm going to be more interested in the confidence of the shooter and the guy getting into his shot, getting into his rhythm and learning to make those at volume in the game because he's translating what he's actually picked up in practice for the last six months or five months, however long it's been since they were eliminated coming from the off season, the summer into training camp and now the regular season. So I like all this stuff. Um, there's a handful of young players like that where you're where you're watching them play. Jalen Green in Houston is another one where maybe now some of the things are fitting together more. Where last year you saw like yeah, he gets a little fast and loose with some of these plays, but oh oh there's there's a pocket pass on the pick and roll and it's perfectly delivered. And it's like oh the next time down the court, same pick and roll turns the corner and then he gets by his guy because he's so quick. He's got a rocket engine in his back. And then instead of trying some crazy move at the basket that he did last year, little scoop shot with the arm extended to outreach the defender, the shot blocker. That's where it all comes together. So I'm a big fan of that uh, as long as it doesn't go too far. I think it's, it's not even younger players that this might work with. And going back to the Celtics for last season, right? A big shift as well defensively is moving Marcus Smart from the two to kind of being the 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 one, right? The guy that was creating the offense. And all of a sudden, and that's something that you see early on in this season, again, is he's just a tremendous passer, right? He has just incredible vision. He can set up players with a lot of really solid manipulation. I don't think that would have happened unless, you know, last year the Celtics were like, all right, smart, we're going to give you the keys to this car. We're going to let you try and drive some of this offense and see what happens. And it, it completely worked out. So, you know, explore that in the regular season see the kinds of things that you can do the bucks a couple years ago not to be a caricature of myself but experimenting with with their switching defense during the season at the team level something that they could use in the offseason Giannis continuing to grow with that post fade which we saw being really vital in the playoffs and things like that so players need to try these things out so that they can be comfortable um you know at a like a subconscious level be a lot more comfortable and just go into the flow of it when it actually matters in a playoff or big game situation yeah, it turns out I think I've seen every single three-pointer Scotty Barnes has attempted this season. We've got the stats on it. He's two for four to start the year. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I thought he looked comfortable shooting threes, but I know he's just been jacking up all kinds of shots. Uh, the other shots, uh, statistically, that I was referring to in the mid-range, just five for 15, 33%. But again, if that shot is coming along, what you'll see with young players sometimes is you might see the three-point percentage jump and the mid-range numbers fall in one season because of the sample size, because of the integration and the new skill. But over time, what's really happening is their outside shot is getting better. And in the long run, all of a sudden, you'll start to see, okay, he's 30. Now he's 36% from three. That's stable year to year. And that long-range, mid-range stuff is now 40% instead of 34% or whatever it is. So that's what I'm looking for. Um, 
Yeah, it's 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 been a fun first week. What else? What else do you want to leave us with before we get out of here? Well, I want to maybe this is too big of a question at this point in the podcast, but on this conversation, how do you think you'd be able to tell, like as a as a coach or whoever else? Uh, how would you be able to tell if you're veering too much into being like, we're actually ingraining some bad habits as a player versus we're letting you explore and develop in these different ways that they're, you're not used to playing? Oh, boy. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard okay. one. Because okay. don't you think it's a case-by-case basis? Yeah. You just, I, I think you probably just have to sort of get a feel for the player or the players and you want them to be in a positive learning environment. Uh, the Basketball Immersion podcast with Chris Oliver, who we've had on this show before, um, they have some great episodes discussing this exact kind of thing with coaches and practice drills and sort of how you groom stuff into players. And I imagine you want to give them good reps and have them be in a position where maybe the best way to describe it is that the failing is learning, right? Versus the failing is creating a bad habit. You know, if you come off the screen every time and you have hazardlessly sort of aimlessly pull up from 21 feet, that might be ingraining bad, bad skills because it's not an optimal play. And in some way, it's strategically lazy. But if you're in a position where you like, you say, okay, I want to always work on getting two steps deeper into the paint till I get into this move because I know this move is great. You work on it in practice. You're very mindful about it and you do it in the game. To us, it might look new for a player. It might be like, why is Patrick Williams taking those fadeaway jumper? Why is Brooke Lopez shooting threes all of a sudden? Remember that a couple years ago when Brooke just started launching threes? Uh, it's the same kind of thing, I think. It's just like putting them in a position where you are mindful about it and where the failing probably creates opportunity. But that's just... It's too big of a topic for me. Those are off off the cuff thoughts. Uh, I I would recommend going through and listening to some of those basketball immersion podcasts where they talk about this very specific thing in a way. Yeah, and Lopez, like you said, turned the clock back what twelve years, and you have a guy that's not necessarily known for being a strong defensive player, a guy that didn't venture out to the three point line and was known as like a big post up threat. All of a sudden, like further into his career, he reinvents himself as this incredible drop big. He's shooting from, you know, four feet behind the three-point line to provide spacing. And he's at least somewhat effective doing that, turning himself into Splash Mountain. So, you know, this isn't just young players. Like every player is developing and, and trying new skills. And you also never know in what context things are going to work. You switch teams, you get different teammates. Maybe you have to change it up just a little bit. If you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Also, the latest thinking basketball video is exclusive on the NBA app right now. We're going to start up YouTube videos and our regularly scheduled programming during the season. But we also have stuff with the NBA this year, which is really fun and exciting. You can check that out on the NBA app. Uh, it's on Zion Williamson and how he fits in to the Pelicans offense and how they're looking very good. Once again, if you want to directly support us, patreon.com slash thinking basketball, a ton of extras. We've got our monthly live Q&A and more. Cody, we did it. We made it through our first show of the season. We kept the podcast under two hours, which is a, a rarity after our summer tours through NBA history, talking about top 40 players and whatnot. So I'm excited. The first week of the season has been super fun. We will come back and get back into regularly scheduled program programming very shortly. But as always, thanks for listening all the way through. And of course, I hope you're having a great day. <laughs>